Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. If you will turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, we are going to start this morning in Ezekiel chapter 36, opening up Ezekiel chapter 36 and starting in verse 25. We're going to look at a portion of scripture here. This is, of course, the prophet Ezekiel, and he is speaking to the children of Israel, giving them a word from God that they are coming out of captivity. When they are in captivity, he's declaring to them the freedom and the future and the hope that God has for them. And these couple of lines that come in the middle of this declaration, it says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh." Ezekiel begins speaking to them about what God is getting ready to do in their midst and about what God is getting ready to do in their future and where he's taking them and what he's walking them into. And he uses some interesting imagery as he does it. He talks to them about water, that God is going to cleanse them with a water. And to the people he's speaking to, the first thing that would come into their mind would be a ceremonial cleansing of water, a sprinkling of water that made them clean in order to enter into the temple or to perform ceremonial rites. It's speaking to them that the uncleanness that they have been part of or that they have adapted to or that they have conformed to or even that they have bound down to in the midst of the place that they are that God is going to use his water to cleanse them. What they may not have picked up on in the original reading is that this cleansing and sprinkling with the water is also a picture and a foreshadowing of what Jesus would come to do in their life when he would come to be the one who cleansed us from all unrighteousness and from all uncleanness and from all of the ways that we have been marred by sin and the world that we live in in this moment. I find it so beautiful that some Sometimes God is revealing himself to us and Jesus is showing himself to us even before we know that he is showing himself to us. Can anyone testify that there has been a moment in your life where you looked back on your life and you realized that God was right there in the midst of it with you, even though in the midst of it you couldn't see everything he was doing and you couldn't see everything that he was speaking and you couldn't see everything that he was working. It was only when you saw the fullness of what he was doing that you could look back and say that he was right there in the midst of it. And then he tells them, I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit. A new heart speaks of the centrality of the personality of the person. In Ezekiel's terms and in Ezekiel's language, he would be saying to them, your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, the inward part of what makes you, you. I'm getting ready to transform and redirect all of that inward part of who you are. And then he said, I'm going to fill you with a brand new spirit. I'm going to give you a new spirit. And the spirit would speak to them of the inward part that directs and that decides and that determines the outcome and the actions of what I do from the inside. It's the part of me that governs my emotions. It's the part of me that governs my will. It's the part of me that governs. And he said, I need your heart and your spirit to be in alignment together. So much of the chaos and of the destruction that we experience in life comes from this place of our heart and our, and our spirit being out of connection with each other, being dis, disintegrated, goodness, disintegrated from one another. When my will and my emotions and my desires are in conflict with the part of me that is directing where I go and who I am becoming. And Ezekiel says, what God is saying to you is that the inward part of who you are is getting ready to become fully integrated together. And I am renewing you from the inside out. That the thing that is going to happen to you externally has to first start with you internally. He's saying to them, yes, there will be freedom from your captivity. And yes, there will be lands to be possessed. And yes, there will be authority that is given to you. But before any of that happens, I need to talk to you about what is happening on the inside of you. And so Ezekiel gives them this word that I am going to come and that the God is going to come and cleanse them with water and give them a new spirit and a new mind and a new heart. And he says, and the heart that you have that has been hardened by the situation that you've been in and the heart that you have that has been calloused and made into stone by the situations of life and the moments you've walked through, that thing, that wall that you've put up on the inside of you because you didn't know how else to walk through all of the heartache and all of the hurt and all of the betrayal and all of the trauma. You didn't know what else to do. And so out of your own doing, the only thing you knew to do was to harden up your heart and make it a wall and a construction so that nothing else could penetrate it and nothing else could get through it. The problem with that is that when we create a callous, stony heart on the inside of us and say, I'm going to make it this way so that no one can ever hurt me anymore, then no one can ever love you either because they can never reach to the depths of who you are and they can never reach to the trueness of who you are and they can never see the depths of who God has made you to be. And if no one can ever reach to it, how can God penetrate the heart that you have created and the wall that you have made when you say nothing and no one is ever going to come through this? And so God says to them, before I take you into anything else, we have to heal the thing that you've been through. And that starts
starts with healing your heart. It starts with taking this calloused, hardened, stony part of you and place that you've done. And I'm going to take the hardness out and I'm going to take the rocks out and I'm going to take the stony place out and I'm going to put back in it something that pumps and something that gives life and something that has nourishment and something that can restore you and something that can strengthen you. And he says, there comes to you now a heart of flesh again. And the thing that is noticeably missing throughout these lines is the effort, the work, the influence, the power of the people who it's being done to. Five times in two short verses, God says, I will. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will cleanse you. I will take the stony thing and I will give you a fleshy thing. And he is trying to point them to this position and to this declaration that it has nothing to do with their strength and it has nothing to do with their power and it has nothing to do with their ability, but it's by his will that it's happening. It's by his arm that it's happening. It's by his strength that it's happening. He is saying to them over and over again, it is not you, but it is me. It is not your performance, but it is me. It is not your effort, but it is me. It is not your strength that's going to do this, but it's me. There is something that he is trying to make clear to them because I don't know about you, but I kind of like the idea that sometimes it gets to be me. But at the end of the day, God is declaring to them that it's not them. It's him over and over again. And I want to talk to us today about a, from a message that I have titled, I'm ready for the light. You can say to somebody next to you, I'm ready for the light. Which doesn't make any sense right now, but hopefully if things go according to plan, it will make sense by the end of this message, that I am ready for the light. Phil and I have this habit, we have this routine, maybe this rhythm in our life that we desire to continually be growing and desire to continually be becoming better leaders. And one of the best ways that we know to do that is to continually be getting feedback from each other and from our team, to continually be hearing in what ways have I done really well and in what ways could I still be improving. So often when we come out of leading a meeting, someone will say, hey, I'd love to give you some feedback on that. Or even better, we've tried to build a culture where we're continually asking for feedback. Hey, how did you think that meeting went? Hey, how did you think I did in this weekend service? What do you think was working well? And what do you think wasn't working well? And it's part of our regular rhythm. However, I have noticed something about myself, which is that I am very eager to ask for feedback on the days that I think I've done pretty well. If I think I've really crushed a meeting, I come out and I'm like, hey, do you have any feedback on my meeting? How did you think that that meeting went today? How was that? Now, if I don't think that the meeting went particularly well, if I don't think that a weekend service I did particularly well in, I am far less eager, far less likely to go seeking out that feedback because the truth is 
While I desire feedback to grow and improve, what I really like is affirmation on my own performance, on my own effort, on my own ability to hit things out of the park. What I really want to know is did you see how well it, it takes a whole different level of vulnerability for me to come and to truly say, I want to see how I did and I want to be seen for how I did in all of its truthfulness and in all of its integrity in good days and in bad days. I truly want to be seen because the truth is that there is always a part of me that is measuring up my own value and my own worth and my own success rates by how I'm doing, by how well I performed today, by how well I showed up today, by how well I executed today, by how good I feel about the thing that I am doing today. And the truth is that it is the message of Christianity and it is the message of Jesus that it is not about our own effort and it is not about what I'm doing and it is not about my performance today that makes me qualified or makes me worthy or brings me into a position that I can be seen. And all of this is the backdrop for John 3, which is where we're going to journey through today. If you want to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 3, John 3 starts out when a teacher comes to talk to Jesus. John 3, starting in verse 1, says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So what's happening here? Nicodemus is one of the teachers in the Jewish community. In fact, he is a well-regarded teacher in the Jewish community. And he comes to Jesus by night. There you go. Look at it again. He, this is going to be important. He comes to Jesus by night. Because he has heard who Jesus is and he wants to ask him some questions about what's going on. And he sees that he is a teacher of the law, but he wants to understand what is, what is really going on. Because we see you doing signs and wonders and miracles. And we know that you must be from God because you are doing these things. But there is something totally different about who Jesus is. And in the following verses, Jesus and Nicodemus would begin having this conversation, this conversation where Jesus says to him, well, anyone who wants to come to the Father has to be born again. And Nicodemus says to him, what do you mean born again? And Jesus re-explains, be born again. And Nicodemus says, are you saying to enter into my mother's womb for a second time? And Jesus says back to him, how don't you get this? Aren't you a teacher? That's what he says to him. It's, sometimes you miss it because like in the King James, you know, it sounds real, real nice. But really, some scholars even suggest that Jesus is intentionally kind of pressing Nicodemus because the way that Nicodemus came to Jesus, he called him rabbi and he said, we see that you're a teacher, but actually there's a bit of an under 
underside to the way that he's saying it because Jesus didn't take the the well-studied route that Nicodemus had taken. He didn't have years and years of letters behind his name in the way that Nicodemus said. So Nicodemus is kind of underhandedly saying to him, you must be a teacher even though we don't really know about your credentials and even though we don't really know where you came from and even though we don't really know who your people are. And so Jesus is now making the point to him, I thought you were a teacher and I thought you could track with what I'm laying down. I thought your conversation was on this level. Aren't you the teacher of the people, Nicodemus? But you're not quite tracking with what I'm saying because what Jesus is pointing to for Nicodemus is directly back in true rabbinic fashion to this Ezekiel scripture where Ezekiel said, I'm going to wash them with water and they're going to be washed in spirit. And Jesus is saying, this is like that thing. They're going to be washed in water and they're going to be washed in spirit in the way that they are reborn to come out of a thing. They are going to be reborn in this new way by water and by spirit. And in the way that Ezekiel spoke to them and said, it starts from the inside and then moves to the outside, Nicodemus, what I'm saying saying to you is that this thing starts on the inside and then works on the outside. I am making to you the point that everything in the kingdom of God begins with an inward transformation, begins with the transforming of your inward being, begins with your heart and your spirit being made new through the power of his presence and through the power of his redemption. Jesus is trying to point to Ezekiel and say, in the way that they came out of captivity, I came to move people out of captivity and out of bondage and into freedom, but it doesn't look exactly how you thought it was going to look, Ezekiel, because it doesn't start from the outside and move to the inside. Everything I have always done and everything I always will do is about an inward changing and an inward transformation of what happens from the inside of you and moves to the outside of you. That is my way and that is my kingdom. So you want to see peace in your home? It starts from the inside and moves to your outside. You want to see a new job? It starts from your inside and moves to your outside. You want to see your city changed and transformed? It starts from your inside and it moves to your outside. You want to see financial clarity? It starts from your inside and it moves to your outside. You want to be freed from bondage? It starts from your inside and it moves to your outside. Jesus is trying to clarify to him, this is about taking stony, broken, hurt hearts and making them into hearts of flesh that can beat again, that can move again that can feel again, that can do something in the earth again. This is not about your outward actions and this is not about the things that you can do to get your life in shape and get your life together and get yourself prestigious. And this is the central point of conflict for Nicodemus because Nicodemus has been a studier of the law. Nicodemus has been someone who has kept his life. To be honest, Nicodemus isn't like the woman that John would write about one chapter later. The woman at the well or the Samaritan woman we sometimes call her who has come to the bottom of herself, 
She doesn't like her life. She has a hurting life. She's just trying to avoid everyone else. Her life has been filled with disappointment and with sorrow and with betrayal. And all she wants to do is get by and not have to see anyone else. Nicodemus's life isn't quite like that. To be honest, Nicodemus was dealt a pretty decent hand in life. And he thinks he's done pretty well with the hand that he was dealt as well. To be honest, Nicodemus kind of likes the idea that he might be measured up by the way that he lives his life and by the decisions that he makes. He kind of likes the idea that his outward actions and that his lineage of birth have something to do with whether or not he gets into the kingdom of God. And he particularly likes the idea that those will be measured up against other people because other people have not done quite as well as Nicodemus has. And Nicodemus has worked hard for his status and has worked hard for his position and has been waiting to get to the place where he finds out what his glorious place in the kingdom of God is. And Jesus came to absolutely turn everything upside down for Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, it's not the outward actions, it's the inside renewing. It is the rebirth and the re transformation of what happens by the power of my spirit, by the power of an inward change. And Nicodemus is trying to wrap his mind around what he has been taught and what he has grown up in, which is that it has everything to do with all that he does. And it has everything to do with his effort and his ability to be right standing before God. And in the midst of this great conversation, we come to Jesus announcing what I'm grateful John took the time to write down and has become one of the most famous, one of the most central portions of scripture that we read. You see it on the top of NASCARs and you see it on jerseys and you see it tattooed on everybody and scribbled on bathroom door somewhere, Jesus walks Nicodemus right into John 3, 16. And John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It doesn't say anything about all the rules Nicodemus has been following. It doesn't say anything about all the sacrifices that need to be made. It doesn't say anything about his ritual purity. It doesn't say anything about the lineage he was born in. It doesn't say anything about his family. It doesn't say anything about what he does. It doesn't say anything about his job or his status or who he is in their community or their society. It just says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but should have eternal life. The danger of a scripture becoming so common and so familiar to us is that we allow it in its familiarity to lose its power. There is a reason that this scripture is painted and posted and repeated so often as it is. It says, for God, for God. 
the creator of the heavens and earth, the supreme one who is greater than all, the one who always was and always will be. Don't move on past that fast first word and lose how significant it is, how cosmologically unique it is that there is a God who cares to care about his creation, that there is a God who looked on the ones that he created and didn't create an order where he said, I need everything to move in my direction, but he said, I am the God who loves you, that he was moved, that God who is all powerful and that God who always was said, I am moved with love. And because he was moved with love, he wasn't the God who said, I need you to come to me. He said, I'm the God who's going to come to you. My love and my heart and my compassion are so for you that he looks at you and he thought of you and he cared for you and he was moved for you. It says that that God loved the world, loved the whole world, loved the people of Nicodemus. Nope. Loved you and your family. Nope. Loved people that look like you. Nope. Loved people from our country. Nope. Loved people from your neighborhood. Nope. Loved people from your socioeconomic bracket. Nope. Loved people who are your age. Nope. Loved people who are older than you. Nope. Loved people who are younger than you. Nope. Loved the whole world. He loved the whole world. God so loved the whole world. And then it says, you can keep it up, please, Andrea. It says, he so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son. Some of your translations will say that he sent him. It means that he commissioned him with a purpose, that he gave him up for this reason to send him on intentionally with a mission and with a purpose in mind. And in the mind of Nicodemus, who I believe has caught up by now, he would think of the story of Abraham and of Isaac and the way that Abraham gave up his son to be the living sacrifice. And in that same way, it says that God gave up the only son that he had and he offered him up and he sent him for this express reason and this express purpose to be offered up as that very living sacrifice so that whoever believes in him, so that whoever follows all his rules, so that whoever does everything right, so that whoever looks like you want him to look, no, whoever believes in him, whoever finds the inward strength and the inward stability to say, I've decided to put my hope in you, God. I've decided to put my trust in you, God, that there's an inside conviction of who you are, that I have decided that all of me is dependent on you and that I believe in him that they should not perish that they should not be given up to destruction and to separation and to annihilation that they should no longer have to perish but instead because of their belief they now have access to eternal life through him and with him and in him forever rejoicing in the fullness of who he designed you and created you to be forever and always saying glory and holy and worthy is the lamb who was slain the God who was God of all, the one who rose and couldn't be held down forever now because he was sent and because he so loved and because we believe we have access to eternal life. This is the statement that Jesus makes. There is a reason. It has become our central call and he doesn't stop. He goes on in verse 17. And he keeps going. And in John 3 and 17, he says, 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the son of God. God, this becomes the central statement. This becomes the missional decree of Jesus' life, of his purpose, of why he came into the earth. He comes and he says, this is why I was sent. Have you ever, recently Phil and I were playing, it's not like a game, it's like a conversation starter, where you ask someone, um, what would you like written on your tombstone? I know, it's a little bit morbid. Agreed, but it's designed to, you know, allow you to reflect on like, what do you want your life to be about? And what are your true values and what's driving you? And, and what do you want to be known for? And, and all of those things so that you can focus in on who is it? Famously, A.W. Tozer, a, a theologian, has written on his grave simply, a man of God. And you think about, what do I want people to say about me? If someone could summarize in a few short words who I was or what my life was about, what would I want them to say about me? And I think on Jesus' tombstone, well, it would say BRB. (laughs) Some of you got that. There you go. But after that, I think these words are what his life was about. He would say, this is why I came. I was sent for a purpose. I wasn't sent for no reason, and I wasn't given up for no reason. I was given, and I was sent on a mission, on a thing that I came to do. And he says, God sent me into this world because of God's great love that whoever believes in me would not perish but would have eternal life. And then he says, I didn't come to condemn the world. And I don't know how we've gotten that so flipped around. He says, I didn't come to condemn the world. That's not why I'm here. He says, but I came to proclaim life. I came to bring them into freedom. I came to offer salvation. I didn't come for condemnation. I came to save them. And he says, whoever believes in me will be saved. But whoever doesn't believe in me is condemned already. This This is the only way I could think to kind of explain this. Because... There's a lot of conversation around what does this mean, and sometimes I think we complicate things that are actually quite simple. If you were in a body of water, and I came and I pulled you out of that water, you would no longer be in the water, correct? If you were in a body of water, and I did not pull you out of that body of water, you would still be in the body of water. We came into a world in our first birth that was already condemned, that is already living in the effects of a fallen sinful world, that is already living and existing in a space of disconnection with who God is and who he designed us to be. The exit from that 
pool of water, from that pool of condemnation is to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And when we say, I believe in you, we receive our hand to come out of the place of condemnation. When it says they are condemned already, it's not that Jesus is putting on them condemnation. It is a statement about the state that they already exist in and the place they are already living in. He's saying they will continue in the existence of condemnation. But if they want a way out of that, the simple way for you to exit the place of living in the pool of condemnation is to say yes to Jesus, to say yes to his hand and to allow him to pull us out of that place of condemnation and into the place of his freedom and into the place of eternal life with him where we get to live with a renewed life from the inside to the outside and Nicodemus's world is totally being rocked. Everything he has ever known is not laying out in the way he thought it was. So Jesus continues. And in John 3 verse 19, it says, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. He continues his picture and he says there is light and there is darkness and the light has come. And when light comes into the picture, it exposes the existence of darkness in your life. You didn't know that light wasn't an option until light came on the scene. And suddenly the living in darkness became not the only option, but a new route is now available. And it is not lost on me that he uses the picture of living in light light and in darkness with a man who has come to him by cover of night. That Nicodemus came to speak to Jesus, not in the light of the day and not shining where everyone could see. He made sure that he came to him under the cover of night and under the cover of darkness because Nicodemus is still concerned about what other people are going to think about this Jesus that he's curious about. And Nicodemus is still concerned about how this is going to impact the way that he lives his life and the people that he rolls with. And he's not quite sure that his actions are going to measure up and that the thing that he has lived his life on and based his life on will stand up to the exposure of the light if this is not truly everything that he thought that it was going to be. And Jesus says to him, if you are measuring yourself by that, then darkness is what you are choosing. If you are measuring yourself by your ability to make it on your own, wickedness certainly entails all of the moral ambiguity that we can think of when it comes to it. But wickedness more than anything has to do with a self-centered nature that says it's out of my own strength and it's out of my own hand and it's out of my own ability. And what I'm really concerned about is how everyone else is going to see the thing that I'm doing right now. And what I'm really concerned about is how this is going to measure up to everyone else around them. And Jesus says to him, it's not being covered in darkness and it's not 
not being measured by your own works. It's coming into the light of who I am. It's coming into my light that shines on you and shows you for who you truly are. When I don't want to receive feedback, it's because I'm measuring myself by whether or not my value has measured up, by whether or not I can withstand being seen in the light of who I truly am, by whether or not I can withhold taking some criticism and taking some impact and some influence on who I am and whether or not all of that is truly true to who I am. And Jesus is saying to him, when you come into the light and when you choose the light, it's no longer about being seen for your actions and being seen for the thing that you have done and finding out whether you're measured up or not. When you choose to come into the light, it is an acceptance of who I am in your life. It is a statement and a declaration of belief in who Jesus is. And now you're not afraid of the light any longer. And now there's no fear in the light any longer because when I stand in his light, I'm not afraid that his light will shine all of my imperfections and all of my shortcomings and all of the places I don't measure up. I'm not afraid that his light is going to reveal where I'm never going to make it and where I never could have come to it because I have accepted that it's not the thing that I do and it's not what I can bring to the table and it's not what I came from. It's his work in me making me new and now I know that his light is good and his light is true and his light is faithful and anything that his light exposes in me, it exposes in me not to shame me and not to condemn me and not to send me back to where I came but to make me more like him, to transform me in fresh ways, to give me a powerful turnaround, to say that I have called you and I have redeemed you and I have seen you and I have known you by name and he says when you love your own words you'll always stay in the dark and you'll never be who you truly could have been but when you love the light you say Jesus I believe in you and I'm not afraid of this light anymore I'm not afraid of you shining on me anymore I'm not afraid of who you've called me to be anymore what I want to say is that I believe in you what I want to say is that I trust in you that I put my whole life in you that I see that for this reason God sent his one and only son that he loved the world so dearly that he desired that none would perish but all would have ever lasting life.